As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello there, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Today is the 30th episode of PCPC, and we're going to be taking a look at Lauda Air Flight 4, a scheduled flight from Bangkok, Thailand to Vienna, Austria on Sunday, May 26, 1991. Let me say something right at the beginning of today's episode. I have missed you all so much. I missed hanging out with you guys. I'll always remember how we wrote out the beginning and middle of the 2020 pandemic together. It's good to finally be back. For the past few months, I've been attending to some personal matters, but luckily things are settling down again, and I finally have time to research, and I look forward to cranking out the PCPC episodes for you all in 2021. I want to give a thank you from the bottom of my heart to the PCPC Patreon crew. To all of you that have stuck with us for these past few months, I really appreciate it. To all of you that were a part of the Patreon crew and had to leave for one reason or another, know that we are forever grateful for your contribution. We loved having you with us. If anyone out there likes the show and wants to donate and keep us afloat, please check out patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thank you all again for your support. This episode's coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Christmas was a few days ago. We've almost made it through this odd, surreal year, and I hope you're all hanging in there and weathering the storm the best you can, just like the rest of us. On today's episode of PCPC, 
We are happy to be joined by a staunch supporter of vaccinations and world-renowned chess grandmaster, Miss Tess Andrade. Ah, both things are true. Both things are true. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Michael. Tess, I'm pretty sure the people out there have missed you. Have you missed them? I've missed everyone so much, and I can't believe we're doing another episode. It's been way too long. Yeah, I'm happy to be back as well. Uh, what have you been up to? How are you holding up 10 months into the pandemic? I'm doing okay, Michael. I'm trying to stay busy, and the holidays were a lot of fun. Um, pretty low-key for obvious reasons, but... Um, I'm feeling hopeful about recent news of a vaccine and all of that bodes well. Yeah, definitely. What have you been doing with your downtime? Anything to pass the time? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked because I've been playing a really fun game with you of all people and it's called Pan Am The Game. Yeah, it is a blast. You want to tell people about it? Sure, yeah. It's sort of a Monopoly-esque game where you are the CEO of your own fledgling airline and you have to um, build up your fleet and get different routes and eventually buy shares of Pan Am stock. And the winner is the person who has the most stock in Pan Am. Yeah, I thought it was a little uh, confusing at first when I was going through the instructions, but eventually I got around to playing it and it was a lot of fun. Um, obviously, we're not sponsoring this game by any means, but I just thought that our listener, uh, our listeners would be interested in hearing about it. Yeah, we, we actually posted some pictures onto our Twitter of the board, which, by the way, took about an hour and a half to set up um, <laughs> just because we were learning all the rules. Um, but it, it's super fun. And again, not an ad, but we, um, I would say it was, it's one of the funnest games I've played in a long time. Yeah, it was right up our alley. Uh, are there any shows or movies that you've been into the past few months that you want to tell people about? Oh, another great question. Actually, last night I watched something that I vowed to talk about on the podcast today with you, but I, I did admittedly fall asleep like five minutes in, but I'm still going to talk about it as if I'm an expert. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, there's a documentary on HBO Max um, that's called Mystery of D.B. Cooper. And it's about this gentleman who I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with who hijacked a Boeing plane in 1971, stole a bunch of money on the plane, and then parachuted off the plane like a total boss. Um, and no one has seen or heard of him since. That sounds very interesting. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, I actually think we could do an episode on this. Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe you should uh, tackle that. You do all the research and uh, writing. Well, I'm sort of busy, <laughs> kind of tied up, Michael. I'm just kidding. Uh, yes, I will. I will do that for you. I watched Lawrence of Arabia recently. That was a phenomenal movie I'd never seen. It was also on a bit of a Gene Hackman kick and watched The Conversation. I think that was a movie from the early 70s. Both of those movies were very good. Tess, a lot has happened in the world of aviation over the past few months. I'm going to get to a few more stories at the end of the show. But first, on November 18th, 2020, FAA Administrator Steve Dixon rescinded the grounding order on the Boeing MAX planes. That order had been put in effect way back on March 13th, 2019, three days after Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 was lost shortly after taking off from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia crash that led to the loss of 157 lives. A 115-page airworthiness directive was published by the FAA in November, requiring design changes before the MAX planes are permitted back into service. 
The FAA also put forth new training requirements for pilots and new maintenance standards for airlines with Boeing MAX planes in their fleet. The Boeing MAX planes are not currently being flown by any airline in the United States, but the FAA has recertified the aircraft as safe to fly, and domestic airlines have plans to bring the planes back into service in a few days. FAA Administrator Dixon was quoted at a press conference as saying, This airplane has undergone an unprecedented level of scrutiny by the FAA. We've not left anything to chance here. The design changes that we've overseen make it impossible for these accident scenarios to reoccur. Brazilian low-cost carrier Goal was the first airline in the world to bring a Boeing MAX plane back into service since the worldwide grounding. On December 9th of this year, Goal flew passengers on a Boeing 737 MAX from Sao Paulo to Porto Alegre. Mexican carrier Aeromexico became the second carrier to bring back the Boeing MAX, flying passengers from Mexico City to Cancun on December 21st. American Airlines is planning on returning the Boeing MAX to the skies on December 29th. An American Boeing MAX plane is currently scheduled for a domestic flight from Miami to New York on December 29th. United Airlines is scheduled to bring the plane back on February 11th, and Alaska and Southwest will be reintegrating the MAX planes into their fleet in March 2021. So, Tess, MAX planes are currently back in the skies in Brazil and Mexico. If everything goes according to plan, they'll be in the United States with American Airlines in a few days. What do you think about that? If you showed up at the airport, and when you got to the gate, you found out you were about to fly on a Boeing MAX plane, would you walk on board? I'd be a little nervous, Michael. I can't lie. Um, You know how I feel about the Boeing Max planes, and uh, it would be a tough sell to get on one. Yeah. Knowing what I know, I'm the man who knew too much. (laughs) (laughs) The woman that knew too much. Yeah, I think the FAA and Boeing, I feel like they've been incredibly embarrassed by this whole Max episode. I mean, I feel like both of their reputations have taken a big hit, and I hope that they feel like they have a chip on their shoulder. I can't imagine that they've been anything but insanely thorough while reviewing the design of these planes for the past two years. But with that said, I feel like I'm like any other human being where I see Max and that just scares me. And I have no desire to get on a Max plane and hope that MCAS is still working out. It seems to me that the plane had a design flaw and they tried to fix it with MCAS. And that doesn't instill a lot of confidence. I couldn't agree more, Michael. It's... um. Not exactly the world's most popular plane right now. Yeah, I read online that airlines and Boeing have obviously gotten the message that consumers don't like hearing the MAX name. So in the future, the plan is to drop the MAX name from the plane. And instead of calling a plane a Boeing 737 MAX 8 or a 737 MAX 7, they're just going to call them 737 7s or 737 8s. So (laughs) MAX is a tainted name. They fixed the plane. They're no longer going to call it MAX problem solved. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I think a total rebranding of the Max 8 is in order. So I'm, I'm really not surprised that they're dropping that, the Max, which does not have good connotations at this point. Yeah, they're on it. We have a couple orders of business before we get started talking about Lauda Air Flight 4. First off, we have new PCPC merchandise available thanks to the good people at TeePublic. There's a link that I'm going to post on our Twitter page at Plane Crash Pod. I'll also include a link in our show notes. So check that out. You can get fellow flyer t-shirts, hoodies, masks, stickers. I can honestly say that at the beginning of 2020, I didn't think we'd ever be selling PC, PC masks to anyone. 
Um, thanks again to Elliot from T Public for her help with the design. She was very kind to us. Uh, again, it's a T Public PCPC merchandise. Yeah, the designs look awesome, and I myself will be purchasing a f- more than a few PCPC masks. <laughs> Next, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. BetterHelp is to therapy what Uber is to car rides. It's counseling for the 21st century. In the past, if you wanted to meet with a therapist, you had to take time off work, book an appointment Monday through Friday between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., drive across town, look for parking. It's kind of a hassle in the end. With BetterHelp, you can meet with your therapist on your schedule from the comfort of your own home. No more traffic, no more parking fees. You can message your counselor 24 hours a day and set up weekly video sessions. Right now is an excellent time to speak with a certified BetterHelp professional. You can have an objective, intelligent person check in with you consistently and help you maintain healthy habits. If you want to learn more and get 10% off your first month, check out betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again to BetterHelp. One more thing, Michael, I'd like to address is that we did at one point on our podcast falsely report that 2020 would be the best year ever. We mm-hmm. said that. We did. We said that and we were we were wrong. Damn wrong. We were we were wrong and we want to apologize to anyone that we hurt um, yeah, with maybe that s- statement. Maybe somebody out there made grand plans for 2020 based upon our prognostication. Yes, based on our prediction that 2020 would be the best year ever. It was not. Um, now we're coming on 2021 fast. And I would just like to say that I have no comment on 2021. I am not weighing in on whether it's going to be a good year or a bad year. It's just a year. There'll be some ups. There'll be some downs. um, But I I have no comment. I think that's a smart move. I'm going to second that and just say 2021 will definitely be a year. It'll be a year. It'll be a year. I like to mention at the top of each episode that I'm not an expert in the field of aviation. I'm not even a pilot. A few years ago, I noticed that I was abnormally nervous about flying. And I decided that I should try and learn more about how planes operate. I figured if I expose myself to this topic that I was fearful of, that over time, some of those anxieties surrounding flying might start to dissipate. We realize that what we discuss on this podcast are tragedies in the lives of many of our fellow human beings out there. Someone's mother, neighbor, or friend died in these crashes, and we in no way want to be disrespectful or cavalier when talking about these events. We just think that plane accidents are historical events that are worthy of our attention. We find it interesting to talk about the role each played in contributing to building air travel into the safe mode of transportation that it is today. Tess, are you ready to get started hearing the story of Lauda Air Flight 4? I'm ready, Michael. Lauda Air Flight 4 was a scheduled flight from Bangkok International Airport in Thailand to Vienna International Airport in Vienna, Austria on the night of Sunday, May 26, 1991. Lauda Air was founded in 1979 by an Austrian Formula One driver named Niki Lauda. Niki Lauda, winner of the Formula One World Drivers Championship in 1975, 1977, and 1984, was also a passionate pilot. In the 1970s, he became interested in flying and flew a private jet. Lauda retired from Formula One racing in September 1979, 
commenting at the time that he didn't want to continue the silliness of driving around in circles and wanted to focus on getting his airline off the ground. However, with his brand new airline facing a mountain of debt, Lauda was enticed to return back to racing in 1982 after being offered a multi-million dollar contract. Nicky Lauda retired a second time in 1985, and in that same year, Lauda Air finally started operations as a charter airline. The airline began flying short-haul charter flights out of Austria using a leased BAC-111 aircraft. In 1987, after adding a number of Boeing 737s to their fleet, Lauda Air commenced scheduled operations as a commercial airline. Two years later, in 1989, the airline started long-haul international flights from Vienna to the Australian cities of Melbourne and Sydney, with a stopover in Bangkok. Lauda Air also flew from Vienna to Miami via Munich. In the late 80s, the airline formed an executive fleet of three small private planes available for chartered flights and also formed a cargo department in 1990. Lauda Air prided itself on great customer service. It adopted the motto, service is our success, and focused on providing customers with clean planes, delicious gourmet food, and a smiling flight crew. An interesting tidbit is that business class on Lauda Air was known as Amadeus class, in a nod to the famous Austrian composer Mozart. In 1989, Lauda Air introduced Boeing 767s to its fleet, planes that they used to service their long-haul international flights. The plane used for Flight 4 was a Boeing 767-300 extended-range aircraft. We covered the 767 in our last episode on Air Canada Flight 143. This particular 767 was delivered to Lauda Air on October 16, 1989, and it was the second of two 767s recently delivered to Lauda. It was the 283rd 767 built by Boeing, which had been delivering the planes to airlines since 1982 for the previous seven years. The 767-300 extended range version was relatively new in 1989. It was introduced to the commercial market in 1988. The 300 extended range could fly almost 6,000 nautical miles without refueling, so airlines loved using it for their long-haul international routes. The 767-300 extended range is the most popular variant of the 767, with 583 planes delivered over the 32 years that it's been available. The plane used for Flight 4 was only a year and seven months old at the time of the incident. It had 7,444 flight hours and 1,135 flight cycles. The plane used for Flight 4 was nicknamed Mozart, so if you were flying in business class on this plane, you'd be flying on Mozart in Amadeus class. That sounds pretty classy to me. The captain of Flight 4 was Captain Thomas Welch. Captain Welch was 48 years old at the time of the incident. He was an American pilot from the Seattle area and served as a helicopter mechanic with the Washington National Guard. Captain Welch was hired by Eastern Airlines in 1966, and he flew with Eastern for 23 years. In 1990, Captain Welch moved on to fly for Lauda Air, and in May 1991, he was in the process of moving to Vienna with his wife Mary, who was a former flight attendant. Captain Welch had over 14,000 flight hours over his 25-year commercial career. The first officer of Flight 4 was First Officer Josef Thurner. First Officer Thurner was 41 years old at the time of Flight 4, 
The Austrian pilot had once co-piloted a flight on a Boeing 737 from Vienna to Bangkok with the founder of Lauda Air, Niki Lauda. That flight where First Officer Thurner shared the cockpit with Niki Lauda was in January 1990. First Officer Thurner had around 6,500 flight hours at the time of the incident. There were eight flight attendants, two pilots, and 213 passengers for a total of 223 souls on board for Lauda Air Flight 4. The weather in Bangkok on the Sunday night of May 26, 1991 was partly cloudy, 78 degrees Fahrenheit with 79% humidity. There were a few clouds at 2,000 feet and a more significant cloud layer at 30,000 feet, but there was no dangerous weather, no thunderstorms in the area. Earlier in the evening, Flight 4 took off from Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong with 125 passengers on board. The plane landed safely in Bangkok and 88 more passengers boarded the 767 for the second leg of the flight to Vienna. 38 of these 88 new passengers that boarded in Bangkok were Thai citizens. There's a full flight crew change in Bangkok as well. Just after 10 p.m. local time, Captain Welch... First Officer Thurner, and eight new flight attendants board the plane and prepare for their 11-hour flight to Vienna. So the pilots finish going through their pre-flight checklist, and the 88 new passengers board and settle into their seats. Flight 4 pushes back from the gate at Bangkok International shortly before 11 p.m. As Flight 4 approaches the top of runway 21 left for takeoff, Bangkok Tower radios over to the cockpit, Lauda 4... Contact approach 1191 after airborne, wind 160 degrees, 7 knots, cleared for takeoff, 21 left, goodbye. First Officer Thurner responds, cleared for takeoff, 21 left, after airborne 1191, Sawadi Crab, lot of 4. Sawadi Crab is Thai for hello and it also means goodbye. First Officer Thurner then tells his captain that there's a plane coming towards the airport on base leg approach and confirms that flight four is cleared for takeoff. 47 seconds later, at 11.02 p.m. local time, the engines on the 767 spool up and Lauda Air flight four blasts down runway 21 left at Bangkok International Airport, lifting off into the night sky en route to Vienna, Austria. Eight seconds after lifting off the ground, Captain Welch says, gear up please and First Officer Thurner retracts the landing gear. First Officer Thurner radios over to Bangkok Departure Control. Bangkok, good evening, Lauda 4. Initially, Departure Control clears Flight 4 for 7,000 feet, but after a few seconds, Departure Control grants Flight 4 clearance to 11,000 feet. Two minutes and 40 seconds into the flight, Captain Welch says, Flaps up, and First Officer Thurner responds, Flaps coming up. Bangkok departure radios over. Lauda 4, Bangkok, requests leaving altitude. And First Officer Thurner answers, out of 3,800, climbing to 1-1,000. Bangkok departure says, Lauda 4, contact Bangkok control, 128.1, over. The First Officer responds, 1281, Sawadi Crab. And Bangkok departure answers, Sawadi Crab. So at this point, Flight 4 is a little over three minutes into the flight, Planes passing through 4,000 feet, gear is up, flaps are up, perfectly normal flight so far. First Officer Thurner then reaches out to Bangkok Air Traffic Control. Bangkok, good evening, Lauda 4. 
Bangkok Air Traffic Control responds, Lauda 4, Bangkok Control. First Officer Therner radios, We are out of 4,500 for 11,000 direct to limbo. And Air Traffic Control responds, Lauda 4, radar identified, maintain flight level 310. First Officer Therner then confirms that he received this message, We are re-cleared to level 310 and maintaining, Lauda 4. So Bangkok Air Traffic Control gives clearance for Flight 4 to climb to 31,000 feet. Captain Welch calls for the after-takeoff check, and First Officer Thurner confirms that the gear's up and flaps are up. First Officer starts doing calculations, adding up numbers aloud in the cockpit in German, his native language. There's a short conversation over the radio between First Officer Thurner and a Lauda Air ground employee. A few seconds after this exchange, 5 minutes and 45 seconds into the flight, an amber-colored warning message pops up on a display screen in the cockpit on the engine indicating and crew alerting system display. A reverser isolation valve warning has appeared. This warning indicates that a possible fault was detected in the hydraulic isolation valve connected to the left engine's thrust reverser system. First Officer Thurner says, Scheitze. Captain Welch, noticing this thrust reverser isolation valve warning, says to his first officer, That keeps, that's come on. First Officer Thurner consults the airplane quick reference handbook and tries to figure out what they should do in response to this message. The warning doesn't stay on the screen permanently, keeps popping up, then disappearing, then reappearing. For two and a half minutes, First Officer Thurner searches for an answer. Finally, Captain Welch asks, What's it say in there about that? First Officer Thurner reads aloud, Additional system failures may cause in-flight deployment. Expect normal reverse operation after landing. Captain Welch responds, Okay, just, uh, let's see. First Officer Thurner then inquires to his captain, Shall I ask the ground staff? Shall I ask the technical men? Captain Welch replies, Oh, you can tell them about it. It's just, uh, no, it's uh, probably just moisture or something because it's not, it's not just on, it's coming on and off. A few seconds later, Captain Welch adds, But oh, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't really, it's just an advisory thing. Could be some moisture in there or something. So Flight 4 is now a little over 10 minutes into the flight. The plane's climbing towards 31,000 feet, The pilots keep on getting this air message that's periodically lit up on their cockpit display. The warning refers to a possible fault with a hydraulic valve that's part of the left engine's thrust reverser system. If you recall from TAM Airlines Flight 3054, we talked about the reverse thrust system, how an engine's like a transformer upon landing, doors on the side of the engine housing open up, and the reverse thrust system forces air forward after landing to try and help the plane slow down. In any event, Captain Welch thinks it's not that big of a deal. He sees this message as just an advisory warning, thinks a little moisture might be the cause of this air message. After all, it was a humid night in Bangkok before taking off. At 11.12 p.m., First Officer Thurner says to Captain Welch, think you need a little bit of rudder trim to the left. Captain Welch replies, what's that? First Officer Thurner repeats, You need a little bit of rudder trim to the left. Captain Welch responds, Okay, okay. Satisfied with Captain Welch's explanation and assurance that the warning wasn't a big issue, 
First Officer Thurner goes back to doing his calculations aloud in German. For the next three and a half minutes, First Officer Thurner is adding aloud in the cockpit as Flight 4 climbs through 20,000 feet, headed towards 31,000 feet. The 767 is flying high above a mountainous jungle region, about 125 miles to the northwest of Bangkok. First Officer Thurner finishes his calculations, and 28 seconds after he finishes, at 11.17 p.m. local time, 15 minutes and 1 second into the flight, the left engine's thrust reverser deploys. Flight 4 is at 24,700 feet, with the engine set at climb speed when the thrust reverser deploys, and First Officer Thurner shouts, Oh, reversers deployed! The sound of airframe shuddering fills the cockpit, and Captain Welch exclaims, Jesus Christ! The left wing of the plane suddenly drops, and the 767 enters a sharp left-turning dive towards the earth. Sound of metal snapping and various caution and overspeed warnings ring out in the cockpit as Captain Welch says, Here, wait a minute. And a few seconds later, Damn it! The 767 picks up a tremendous amount of speed during this dive towards the ground, approaching 760 miles per hour. One of the pilots flips the fuel cutoff switch to the left engine, hoping to still rescue the flight, but the speed is so intense that the plane's structural integrity gives way. 29 seconds after the left engine's reverser deploys, at 4,000 feet above a jungle in the Thai province of Supanburi, Lauda Air Flight 4 rips apart and pieces of plane wreckage rain down over a one-square-kilometer area below. Pieces of the plane's left elevator and rudder were the first parts to separate from the plane as the 767 first experienced buffeting, and the pilots tried to control the plane while it was flying at a very high rate of speed. Next, the right stabilizer gave way, and then the left horizontal and vertical stabilizer broke from the plane. Once the plane had lost its tail, the 767 was forced into a sharp nose-over position, which put extra pressure on the wings, causing them to break off next. Finally, the fuselage broke apart in the middle of the air around 4,000 feet and caught fire. The entire breakup of the plane occurred over only a few seconds. The area where the wreckage landed was so concentrated, just one square kilometer, that investigators concluded that the flight was positioned in a sharp angle towards the ground when it started to break apart. Several local villagers said that they had witnessed an explosion in the sky. Eyewitness Samsak Bunbandan stated, There was a huge explosion of the plane's head, the front section, and the head went down in a huge ball of fire and exploded again when it hit the ground. The main body of the plane went down at about a 45 degree angle. Thousands of villagers in the surrounding area descended on the crash site before authorities could properly secure the area. Many rooted through the wreckage and luggage, taking jewelry, clothes, electronics, and cash. Scavengers walked away with anything that looked valuable, even pieces of the plane, complicating recovery and investigation efforts. Captain Welch's body was discovered at the wreckage site, still in his captain's seat. The flight data recorder was destroyed by fire, and investigators were unable to pull any information from it. Fortunately, the cockpit voice recorder was found intact. All 223 souls on board Lauda Air Flight 4 died in the crash on Sunday, May 26, 1991. So what happened? We know the thrust reverser deployed on the left engine in the middle of the flight, 
But why weren't the pilots able to recover from the upset? Why weren't the pilots all that worried when they received an alert that the left reverser's hydraulic isolation valve was detecting some sort of air? Well, before we answer those questions, I think we should talk a little bit about how thrust reversers and airplane design have changed over time. When a jet airliner is coming in for a landing, it's generally humming along at anywhere between 150 to 165 miles per hour. Once a plane touches down on the runway, pilots want to lose speed and safely slow their plane down for a nice and smooth rollout. They use three basic tools to get their speed under control. There's brakes, similar to brakes in a car, carbon disc brakes that are applied by pilots stepping on a foot pedal in the cockpit, or they're applied by the auto brake system. The friction of the rotating and stationary disc inside the brake slows the rotation of the plane's wheels. So that's one way of slowing down the brakes. Another way to slow down is to utilize spoilers. If you've ever looked at the wing of a 737 upon landing and seen a row of panels down the center of the wing pop up and suddenly you can see straight through the center of the wing to the ground, those are the spoilers. Depending on the aircraft, they can be activated manually by a pilot or automatically activated if the system's armed. Spoilers do two things that help the plane slow down. First, they disrupt the flow of air over the wing by dumping or spoiling the lift, causing all the weight of the plane to be transferred to the landing gear. Secondly, this row of panels that pop up on the wing increases the drag force on the plane. Similar to if you were sledding down a hill of snow and you took your hand and started digging it into the snow as you slid down the hill, you'd lose some speed and momentum. Well, spoilers are basically doing the same thing, but instead of a hand dragging in the snow, it's an airplane control surface dragging through the air, slowing down the plane. The third thing that helps a plane slow down upon landing that we are particularly interested in discussing today is reverse thrust. Often when landing a large commercial airliner, pilots use reverse thrust by pulling the engine throttles in the cockpit to idle, flipping the reverser levers, which activates the hydraulic system that deploys the reverser at idle power. Reverser doors open on the side of the engine housing, blocking doors extend into the fan duct, forcing air forwards instead of backwards to help create drag and slow down the plane. So the entire flight, a plane's engines direct air backwards while propelling the plane forward, but at the end of the flight, upon landing, the thrust reverser redirects the air forward to slow down the plane. Pilots can select full reverse thrust, and the engine will actually spool up to 70% of climb power, but since that air is being forced forward, the plane slows down more quickly. Thrust reversers help pilots lose speed, stabilize the rollout on the runway, and they take some pressure off the brakes so the brakes can enjoy a little less stress, not be the only thing slowing down a massive, heavy Boeing 767 blasting along the runway at 150 miles an hour. Pilots are trained to stow the thrust reverser once the plane gets down to around 45 miles per hour because keeping the thrust reverser deployed at low speeds runs the risk of debris being blown up off the surface of the runway and then sucked into the engine. That can do some damage. As for a little history on reverse thrust, the first experiments that played with the idea of reverse thrust are using the propeller on a plane as a brake on the ground 
took place as early as 1917 in the United States. It wasn't until later, in 1940, that it became widely used on flying boats at the time. Flying boats had to deal with wind and water currents, and the addition of reverse thrust allowed for more control on the water. You could turn in a small radius, stop easier, and back up. A few years later, in the years after World War II, reverse thrust was added to land planes. It took me a while to realize this, and I'm sure many of you out there already know, but reverse thrust for the propeller-powered aircraft of the mid-1940s didn't mean that when the plane landed, the propeller reversed direction and started spinning in the opposite direction. For propeller-powered aircraft, reverse thrust meant that the individual blades of the propeller rotated to a negative angle, forcing air forwards instead of backwards. The entire time the propeller keeps spinning in the same direction, but this change in the positioning of the blades is how reverse thrust was achieved for propeller-powered planes. Engineers Jack H. Sheets and Gordon McKinney were instrumental in the development of reverse thrust. They were quoted in a report extolling the usefulness of reverse thrust saying it permits a reduction in design weights of wheels and brakes, reduces maintenance and wear of tires and brakes, aids in taxiing and parking, and provides an important safety factor when wheel brakes are ineffective because of wet or icy runways or mechanical failure. In the late 1950s, as jetliners with jet engines replaced propeller-powered aircraft, how reverse thrust was achieved changed from rotating the blades of the propeller to manipulating how the flow of air leaves the engine. The Boeing 707, the first commercially successful jetliner, used something called target thrust reversal, where two bucket doors that are part of the nozzle of the engine during regular flight deploy behind the engine during landing, redirecting engine exhaust forward to slow down the plane. The Boeing 767 uses a different design, a cascade system, where as we discussed earlier, Doors on the side of the engine housing open, closing off the flow of air backwards and forcing it forwards. Unlike the older model 707 that affected the exhaust of the engine at the engine's rear and behind the wing, the 767 reverse thrust system forces air forward from the sides of the engine. So this flow of forward air on the 767's reverser system is closer to the front of the engine, closer to the front edge of the wing. As the designers of jetliners became increasingly focused on modifying planes to make them fly as efficiently as possible, trying to save airlines money on fuel and build planes that could travel more quickly than their predecessors, the location and size of aircraft engines changed. Engines became larger. Engines were moved from well below the wings to tucked in tightly right underneath. Engines were also inched further and further ahead of the wings. So on newer planes like the Boeing 767 of the early 90s, you have larger engines that are nestled right underneath the wing, push slightly ahead of the wing, and they use a new type of thrust reverser that pushes air forward from the sides of the engine instead of behind the engine and behind the wing like the old Boeing 707. So you can all probably guess where I'm going with this. What's going to happen if you're in one of these newly designed Boeing 767s and the thrust reversers inadvertently activated mid-flight. The plane is able to fly through the sky because the flow of air over the wings generates lift, keeps the plane flying along. 
Suddenly, a thrust reverser is activated on a large engine mounted close to the wing and slightly in front of the wing, and this engine is pushing air forwards from the engine's sides. This activated thrust reverser is going to greatly disrupt that flow of air over the wing that you're relying on to keep your plane in the sky. It's going to cause a significant loss of lift. So if you have a powerful engine pushing air forwards from its sides and it's located just beneath the wing and slightly ahead of the wing, it makes sense that it's going to have a big impact and dramatically affect the flow of air over the wing. So this all sounds pretty dangerous, right? Why wasn't the aviation industry more aware of this potentially catastrophic danger to flights? Well, there's a couple of factors at play. First of all, as we discussed earlier, the older planes, like the Boeing 707, use a different type of thrust reversal, target thrust reversal, where the air from the engine exhaust would be pushed forward from the rear of the engine. These engines on the 707 were less powerful than the newer engines on the 767, and a deployed thrust reverser on a 707 affected the flow of air behind the wing, not in front of the wing like the late 80s, early 90s 767. So a deployed thrust reverser on a 707 would have less impact on lift than a deployed thrust reverser on a 767. This significant danger to lift due to a thrust reverser was a new danger the industry was unaware of due to new engines with new engine placement using a new thrust reverser system. The second thing to consider is that older planes, older 767s, and even 767s of the same era that just had different engines other than the Pratt & Whitney 4000s that were on the Lauda Air Flight 4, used a mechanical system to control their thrust reversers instead of the electrical system that the 767 for Lauda Flight 4 used. This means that an uncommanded thrust reverser deployment wasn't really possible with the safety interlocks used in the old system, the mechanical system. The thrust reverser could only be deployed if the pilot in the cockpit commanded it by bringing the throttles back to idle, flipping the thrust reverser levers, and many planes had sensors that would only allow thrust reversers to deploy if the plane was within 10 feet of the ground. So that's another reason the industry failed to notice this danger. In-flight deployment of thrust reversers wasn't very common. A third thing to consider is that the 767 was certified. During the certification process, test pilots take planes up in the sky and intentionally try to put planes in dangerous situations to learn how a plane will respond to certain flying conditions. They want to make sure that your average pilot will be well-trained and equipped with the knowledge to overcome any issues that might unexpectedly pop up while they're operating a plane. In 1982, Boeing sent up some test pilots in a 767 to see what would happen if a thrust reverser accidentally deployed mid-flight. The Boeing test pilots performed the test at 10,000 feet while flying at around 250 knots, which is just below 300 miles per hour, and they brought the engines back to idle before starting the test. When the reverser was deployed, there was a lot of noise and vibration, but the plane only lost around 10% of its lift. So Boeing assumed, hey, an in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser on our new 767 isn't that big of a deal. plane's just going to swerve a bit. Any pilot can deal with that, and it'll probably never happen anyways. So the aviation community made this false assumption that the in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser wasn't unsafe or hazardous to a flight. 
They didn't ask themselves, what if this were to happen at a higher altitude or a higher speed? The test was seen as good enough, and there hadn't been a history of planes crashing due to thrust reversers, so no one pushed the matter any further. So now let's talk about the 767's thrust reverser system. System runs off a combination of electrical and hydraulic systems that keep the thrust reverse either stowed or deployed. There's two important valves in the system. One's called the hydraulic isolation valve, and the other is the directional control valve. The isolation valve controls whether hydraulic fluid can enter the thrust reverser system, and the DCV, or directional control valve, directs the hydraulic pressure from the isolation valve to keep the thrust reverser either stowed or deployed. Throughout a normal flight, the hydraulic isolation valve should remain closed, and both valves would have to open up to deploy the thrust reverser, which according to Boeing was next to impossible. Gets even more complicated, Boeing had a new feature on the 767 called Auto Restow. If a sensor picked up that the doors of the thrust reverser were slightly opened, the hydraulic isolation valve would open, allowing hydraulic pressure into the system so the doors could be forced shut. It's theorized that this may be what Captain Welch and First Officer Thurner saw when they received that alert on their display screen, the reverse isolation valve warning. Maybe that while they were seeing this alert come on and off their screen, this was the auto restow system kicking in, trying to jam the reverser doors shut because it sensed a disagreement between the positioning of the reverser doors and the position of the thrust reverser levers in the cockpit. So the pilots see this alert, they consult their emergency checklist and quick reference handbook. Because the aviation community hadn't had major issues with thrust reversers, and Boeing flew test flights and determined that a deployed thrust reverser wasn't a big deal to them, the instruction that First Officer Thurner finds in his book is no action required. First Officer Thurner was concerned by the alert, looked for guidance about what to do, and the message he gets is, no action required. Convinced by Captain Welch that it was probably just some moisture and assured by the no action required in his emergency checklist, he goes back to doing his calculations in the cockpit and not worrying about the alert, which is 100% understandable. Unfortunately, nine minutes after receiving that first alert, both the hydraulic isolation valve and directional control valve opened simultaneously causing the left engine's thrust reverser to deploy, dramatically affecting the flow of air over the wing, causing that left wing to drop. The plane was flying at 24,700 feet and going almost 450 miles per hour at the time that the left thrust reverser deployed. Recall that during the certification flight for the 767, the pilots flew at 10,000 feet and under 300 miles per hour much lower altitude with denser air, and 150 miles an hour slower than Flight 4 was going. Needless to say, the uncommanded deploying of the thrust reverser had a much greater impact on the lift of Flight 4 than it did on the Boeing test flight. Investigators suspect that the left wing lost 25% of its lift as opposed to the 10% that Boeing had experienced during the test flight. Untrained for this type of upset, pilots couldn't save the plane, and Flight 4 entered a twisting left turn from which it could never recover. Due to the vast destruction of the plane, the looting of aircraft parts from local villagers, and the burned flight data recorder, 
Investigators had very little evidence to study and confirm exactly why the thrust reverser doors opened. Investigators couldn't look over the plane's wiring to see what kind of condition it was in, and initially they couldn't find the directional control valve. Nine months after the accident, the directional control valve was turned over to authorities by someone that had looted it from the crash site, but it became clear to investigators that someone had already taken the valve apart and tampered with it, so they couldn't rely on any information from it. It's theorized in the report that either a double short in the electrical system caused both the hydraulic isolation valve and the directional control valve to simultaneously open mid-flight, which led to the uncommanded deployment of the thrust reverser, or that contamination in the hydraulic system affected the directional control valve, causing it to deploy the reversers. An extensive amount of time was spent in flight simulators where the flight conditions of Lauda Air Flight 4 were duplicated, and time after time, the result was an unrecoverable flight that ended in a crash. Investigators determined that unless the pilots could have quickly diagnosed the problem, turned their control wheel hard right, turned off the auto throttle, brought back the throttles to idle, and cut off fuel to the left engine, all inside four seconds, the flight was unrecoverable. So given this information, Flight 4 was impossible to save. The founder of Lauda Air, Nikki Lauda, was heavily involved in the search for answers after the crash of Flight 4. He traveled to the scene of the crash to investigate the wreckage, and also publicly put pressure on Boeing to admit their errors and assumption about the safety of an in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser on a 767. Initially, Boeing refused to admit that a deployed thrust reverser would put a plane in an unrecoverable position. Nikki Lauda flew over 15 flights in a simulator, and each session ended in the flight being lost. Lauda asked Boeing to put out a statement saying that the thrust reverser was the cause of the crash of Flight 4, but Boeing refused to do so. In an interview with The Guardian, Lauda describes what he did next. Lauda said he confronted Boeing executives and said, Take a 767, load it up like it was, with two pilots, deploy the reverse thrust in the air, and if it keeps on flying, I want to be on board. If you guys are so sure that people can continue to fly these aeroplanes without being at risk, then let's do it. Immediately they came to my hotel and told me they could not do it. Boeing finally issued a statement saying that the in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser on a 767 would not be survivable, which cleared the pilots of any responsibility and put the blame on the manufacturer. Lauda Air Flight 4 was the first fatal crash of a 767. On August 15, 1991, the FAA told airline operators of 207 767s worldwide to temporarily cease using reverse thrust when they discovered the evidence that the left engine's reverser was deployed in the wreckage of Lauda Air Flight 4. The probable cause in the accident report stated, The Accident Investigation Committee of the Government of Thailand determines the probable cause of this accident to be uncommanded in-flight deployment of the left engine thrust reverser, which resulted in loss of flight path control. The specific cause of the thrust reverser deployment has not been positively identified. One more thing before we bring in tests, we need to ask ourselves, how did the crash of Lauda Air Flight 4 make flying safer for us today? Well, first off, the crash of Flight 4 was a seminal event in the aviation world. The entire industry was made aware of the dangers of an in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser. 
For decades, the industry had assumed that such an event was recoverable and nothing to worry about. Those assumptions were built upon old technology, though, and planes had changed. Engines grew larger, were mounted closer to the wing, and the thrust reverser systems had evolved. These changes created a new situation where an in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser would significantly affect the lift of an aircraft. While it is unfortunate that Flight 4 crashed, an important lesson was learned by aircraft manufacturers and the FAA that steps needed to be taken to prevent a similar accident from occurring in the future. Next, Boeing learned that the valves that they used in their hydraulic system for their thrust reversers were prone to contamination and needed to be replaced worldwide. In September 1991, Boeing warned airlines that an O-ring used inside the valves in their thrust reverser systems was prone to failure and a seamless valve should be used instead. Lastly, in 1994, the FAA ordered that sink locks were added to all Boeing thrust reverser systems. These mechanical locks ensured that the in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser due to an electrical short cannot occur in future flights. Regular tests to confirm that sync locks are working properly were mandated as well every 4,000 flight hours. So that's how Lauda Air Flight 4 made flying safer. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. It's time to bring Tess into the discussion. Tess, what did you think about the story of Lauda Air Flight 4? Would you say this could be blamed on pilot air, or do you see this more as an industry-wide failure? I definitely see it as a an industry-wide failure. I don't think it was the pilot's fault at all. I mean, you said yourself that they had four seconds to, in a, in a perfect world, they had four seconds to dissect the problem and yeah. correct it. Um, otherwise, the flight would have been impossible to recover mm-hmm. seems like they didn't have all the information that they needed um and when the alert went off they checked their emergency checklist and it said no action required so they didn't take action yeah when they checked that checklist they didn't see a message saying hey a reverser is going to deploy mid-flight possibly and you're going to have four seconds to save the plane i thought one thing we could do is just count to four yeah one two three 
four. I can't even put on my pants in four seconds. Yeah, so that's the amount of time that these guys had to diagnose the problem and come up with a plan to correct things, which is just, there was no time. There was no there was no way that this was the pilot's fault. This was an industry-wide failure, in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely, I totally agree. And the fact that they didn't do thorough enough testing. They tested this issue at, did you say 10,000 feet? Yeah, they tested it at 10,000 feet and basically 300 miles an hour. Right, right. So that was the only; those were the only conditions that they tested this thing, particular thing going wrong. So they didn't do the proper work to keep, keep their pilots safe, in my opinion. Yeah, I think um, what you just brought up actually reminded me of that one British Midland Flight 92. I think if you remember from that episode, the engine failed because of excessive vibration at full power and high altitudes. And investigators discovered that the engine was only tested in a laboratory setting. The engine was never tested at 30,000 feet, and that led to that issue. This mm-hmm. crash, I think, occurred because of inadequate testing that they didn't take the plane up there and see how a plane would respond with a thrust reverser deployed at 25,000 feet or 35,000 feet or these excessive speeds. Um, instead, they just kind of did it in one setting, 10,000 feet, 300 miles an hour, and they said, hey, this is good enough. It seems like everybody should be able to control it. Another thing is those test pilots kind of knew what was coming. They went out there to do this test. These guys didn't know what was happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good comparison. I was also thinking a little bit of Max 8 too um, when you were talking about this, and that might be because we talked about it earlier in the podcast, but um, I felt like the fact that the pilots didn't receive... um, proper training in MCAS and the rollout of the Boeing Max was so expedited that there wasn't enough training for the pilots. I felt like that was kind of a a similarity. Yeah, definitely. I think you nailed it with the Max 8 too. You made me think of how in both situations, the plane was doing something the pilots didn't ask for and they felt confused by what it, why is the plane going through these flying conditions, I did not put it, I did not ask for a thrust reverser door to open. I did not ask for the nose to be pitched down. Both times, it seems like pilots were kind of hampered by a new rollout of technology. Right. Yeah. I guess in this case, there was an alert. There was much more of a a prolonged like struggle with the Max 8, right? Because they were trying to like fight the nosedive of the plane. Yeah. That was slightly different, but yeah, I think this um, the story of Lauda Air Flight 4 also reminded me of TWA Flight 800 in Qantas 72 at times, that this horrible event occurred, and then extensive experiments were held to try and figure out what happened, but we never really get a concrete answer of what occurred. Uh, it seems like everybody makes their best guess that it was a double short in the electrical system or contamination in the hydraulic system, but we don't know for sure, unfortunately, the looting, the destruction, lots of things prevented them from having evidence to really look at and get a concrete story, a definitive account of what happened. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things that made this story so sad. Another thing that struck me about this story was how hard Nicky Lauda fought. Yeah, he was a boss. He was a total boss. I kept imagining him as like, the main character of a movie and he's like fighting tirelessly for these pilots who to restore their reputation and restore the reputation of his airline that I don't think that many people have heard of um, and try, you know, holding Boeing accountable. He just, he just seemed like a fighter and yeah, 
I have respect for him. Yeah, I love that part of the story where he basically goes into Boeing and says, oh, yeah, you guys are so comfortable with your plane. Well, let's take a plane up in the sky and do it. If you think that the thrust reverser wasn't responsible for this crash and it shouldn't affect flight, then let's go up to 25,000 feet. I'll be on it. And finally got them, got Boeing to back down. Yeah, that was a really good tactic, I have to say. Yeah, one question I always had and wondered about, but I never realized the answer until we did this episode, is why planes don't use reverse thrust to back off from the gate. Why do planes rely on a ground vehicle to push the plane back from the gate? Well, as we learned while researching reverse thrust, using reverse thrust at low speeds increases the likelihood that debris might get sucked into the engine and do damage to the engine. So it's safer to have a ground vehicle push the plane back just use the engines to propel forward, blowing air and debris backwards away from the plane. What do you think about that, Tess? That's something I didn't know, and that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that's why planes like the Boeing 727 that have rear-mounted engines, they can um, back off from the gate using the reverse thrust um, because the engines are further from the ground. I guess that doesn't have as big an impact. I guess there isn't a lot of 727s around anymore. but Right. Uh, An interesting story I found on Captain Welch online was that when he was a pilot for Eastern Airlines, he had to deal with a hijacking incident. In 1981, while flying as a co-pilot, hijackers stormed the cockpit and tried to force him to fly them to Cuba. Captain Welch and the rest of the flight crew told the hijackers they would comply with their demands, and then they secretly flew the plane to Puerto Rico, where authorities promptly arrested the hijackers upon arrival. So smooth move by Captain Welch and his flight crew. Very smooth move and bold, too. I would be really terrified to do that, because what if they realized where they were flying? Yeah, well, obviously they were pretty cunning about it, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Uh, several shrines were built around the crash site in the mountainous area to the northwest of Bangkok to commemorate the lives lost on Lauda Air Flight 4. Pieces of the plane still remain on the mountainside, and there's a plaque with a summary of the details of the incident at the crash site. There's also a memorial wall where names of the victims are inscribed, uh, names of the people that were on Flight 4 at a cemetery in Supanburi, about 60 miles to the southeast of the crash site, 23 victims that couldn't be identified were buried in a small area in front of the memorial wall. Lauda Air experienced a drop in passengers to Southeast Asia and Australia after the incident. The airline quickly acquired another 767 into its fleet 17 days after the crash. Austrian Airlines took over Lauda Air in December 2000. Nicky Lauda went on to have more ventures inside the airline industry. He started a low-cost carrier named Nikki in 2003. The airline had a fleet of 30 planes and flew from Austria to vacation destinations in Spain, Portugal, and North Africa. In 2016, he started yet another airline named Lauda Motion. So he had Lauda Air, Nikki, and then Lauda Motion. Nikki Lauda passed away on May 20th, 2019 at the age of 70. The Formula One driver and airline founder's final resting site is at Heilingenstadt Cemetery in Vienna, Austria. Well, I think that might do it for Lauda Air Flight 4. Thank you, Michael, and rest in peace, Nikki Lauda. Yeah, I second that. Tess, before we get to airline news, I thought we could try a new segment on PCPC. I recently had to take an exam where I learned about a thousand new words, and this got me thinking that maybe we could do a very short vocab segment each episode where we quickly go over two new words, try to slowly improve our vocabulary over time. You want to give it a try? Sure. Sounds uh, 
cool. <laughs> Clearly, uh, I need to improve my vocabulary. I'm going to give some aviation-themed examples on how to remember the words. And if this isn't your thing, feel free to skip ahead to the news section. Okay, I'll skip ahead. Our first word today is querulous. Querulous. Spelled Q-U-E-R-U-L-O-U-S. Querulous is an adjective used to describe someone that complains excessively. For instance, if you're on a plane and someone sits down next to you and starts griping about the lack of leg room, how the ticket was so expensive for them to purchase, and the plane's behind schedule, and they wish they had a burrito to eat, this would be a querulous person. Synonyms to querulous are crabby, grumpy, grouchy, irritable, peevish. So that's querulous. Would you describe me as a querulous person, Michael? Not always, not always. (laughs) Only when I need a burrito. Yeah, exactly. Our second word is sinecure. Sinecure. Sinecure is spelled S-I-N-E-C-U-R-E. Sinecure is a noun, and a sinecure is an office or position where there's little work that is required to be done, but the position yields great benefits. So for this example, let's say an airline created a position on a plane called exit row attendant. The job requirements of exit row attendant are simply to sit in the exit row and be ready to open the door in case of an emergency. 99.9% of flights, exit row attendant doesn't have to do any work. He or she just sits there, doesn't have to fly the plane, doesn't have to work drink service. Also, the exit row attendant gets a bunch of perks for very little work. They get free travel to anywhere in the world, free health insurance, a great paycheck, but almost no work is required for them. The exit row attendant job inside the airline would be a sinecure. There aren't a lot of synonyms for sinecure, but it's basically a cushy job riding the gravy train. So that's sinecure. So I I would describe producing this podcast as a sinecure. Would you, Michael? It's a lot of work, Tess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tess, I'm going to read you two sentences, and I want you to tell me which word it applies to. Querulous and sinecure. Okay. Oh, is this a quiz? Yes, it is. Wow. There was a long line to board the plane on Friday, yet another event that Joe would be moaning to his wife about later. Joe sounded like a querulous type. Yes, that's absolutely correct. My friend Sarah only works on Wednesdays, but she receives complimentary use of the company plane, free hockey tickets, and $5,000 a week. Thanks to her sinecure. <laughs> nice work, Tess. You nailed them both. Thank you. Did I pronounce sinecure yeah, correctly? Yeah, it's sinecure. Okay. You did it good. Uh, you ready for a few stories from the world of airline news? I'm ready. It's been a few months since we've done an episode, and over that period of time, despite the coronavirus outbreak, travelers in the U.S. have slowly been returning to the skies. On October 18th, over 1 million passengers were screened by TSA at airports across the country for the first time in a single day since March 16th, 2020, back at the beginning of the pandemic. On the Sunday after Thanksgiving, November 29th, 1,176,000 people flew across the U.S., and on December 23rd, a new record post-pandemic was set with almost 1.2 million TSA screenings at airpoint checkpoints across America. While these totals are inching higher and higher, they still represent a substantial decline compared to where travel was in 2019. From December 18th to December 23rd, travel was down by 54% compared to where it was in 2019. So it's a bit of a mixed bag for the aviation industry tests. More travelers are showing up at airports, which might be good news for the industry, but travel is still basically half of what it was a year ago. 
How are you feeling about the idea of traveling by plane right now? Has the idea changed at all in your mind as the pandemic has evolved over the past year? I think that flying in a pandemic has become normalized to some extent, thanks to these, you know, beekeeping suits that people are wearing and all the precautions that are being taken. Um, I don't think I would fly unless I really had to personally, but um, I, I would be open to it if I was, you know, in a in a crunch and needed to fly somewhere. Yeah, I think the conditions of your travel really would affect your decision to get on a plane or not. I feel like if you're going from one place where you're alone to getting on a plane to hanging out by yourself in another place, that seems okay. But if your plan is to, you know, hang out with family or people you haven't been hanging out with, maybe walking through one airport, sitting on a plane for six hours, walking through another airport isn't the best idea. But what do I know? Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like the destination does matter. Like flying to a cabin in the middle of Antarctica feels different than flying to Las Vegas, Nevada to, you know, go to a a lot of indoor um, Cirque du Soleil events. Yeah, if they're having them. I think that my feeling has changed as the pandemic has worsened or gotten better. Back in September and October, when cases were low, it seemed like it seemed safer to fly. And as cases have gone up and it becomes winter, I feel a little more hesitant. So we'll keep an eye on passenger screenings in the episodes ahead. On December 18th, 2020, Buda Air Flight 4505 was a scheduled flight from Kathmandu to Yanakpur in the country of Nepal. Yanakpur is located 130 miles to the southeast of Kathmandu. To the surprise of the 69 passengers on board the ATR 72500, a twin turboprop airliner manufactured in France, the pilots of the flight accidentally flew the plane in the opposite direction of Yanakpur, 125 miles to the northwest, landing in the Nepali city of Pokhara. The mix-up was brought to the attention of the pilots upon landing. Passengers noticed on their cell phones that they weren't in Yanakpur and notified the flight crew. An Air Buddha representative blamed the mistake on lapses in communication and failure to follow detailed standard operating procedures. Passengers were flown 250 miles from Pokhara to their originally desired destination in Yanakpur later that day. Tess, how would you feel if you were in Los Angeles, boarded a plane for Seattle, and ended up in Austin, Texas? I would feel a little mixed up. <laughs> um, I just have so many questions, though. How could they make this mistake with instruments? I think there must have been some mistake with the message that the pilots got for their flight plan, that the the pilots thought they were flying to Pokhara when they were actually scheduled. There was some mix-up with the flight numbers and just the communication. I don't know. I didn't so get into the this pilots visit. didn't think they were flying to Yanukpur. They didn't think they were making a mistake. They didn't think, oh, we're flying Not to Yanukpur, time to go in the opposite direction. I think there was just a mistake of flight numbers and reassigning of planes. I think there was a window where the weather's nice, so there was a rush to get people to fly, and there was just miscommunication. But So when they landed, they weren't thinking, we're in Yanukpur right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, uh, it seemed like the passengers were kind of bummed out. I feel like if I got on a plane and wanted to go someplace and they're like, surprise, you actually have four more hours of flying to do. I would not be super happy. I'm actually thinking that that could be a fun idea, like a sort of um, Russian roulette of flying where you just get on a plane and you don't know where you're going. And yeah. You have to guess when you land. Mystery plane flight, yeah. I would do that if I had ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah, I feel like it maybe if you just got off and you were someplace you didn't intend on going, you'd be like, well, when you're 
Fight it with lemons, make lemonade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess it's different if you want to be in Yanukpur and you're not in Yanukpur. You're, you're in Pokhara. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, stewardess, did you put something in my drink? <laughs> One too many gin and tonics yeah. in the air. Alaska Airlines is doubling down on their outstanding Boeing Max orders, adding 23 more to their existing order, scheduling the airline to receive 68 new Boeing Max planes over the next four years. Alaska Airlines is currently training their pilots on flight simulators to prepare the planes to be reintegrated into the Alaska fleet in March 2021. Alaska President Ben Minucci says, We're very, very confident that the plane is safe. A lot of work has gone into recertifying this airplane. The issues the airplane had on those tragic accidents has been addressed. We followed all the engineering fixes that went into the MAX. We were very close to it. Boeing, the FAA, we're very transparent with all the changes. We were part of the process. And at the end of the day, we're very comfortable with the engineering fixes that were implemented on the MAX. We're really excited about it. And it's going to be a great airplane. Alaska set up a website for travelers concerned about the MAX planes. On the website, Alaska explains the new design changes that the MAX has undergone. MCAS will now read information from both sensors instead of just one which will compare the incoming data before activating. Pilots will be alerted if the sensors disagree. In those cases, MCAS is disabled if the sensors disagree. MCAS will only activate once for any given alert and not several times in a row. Pilots will always have the power to override the MCAS system. So Tess, sounds like Alaska is all in on these MAX planes. They even said if travelers have any worries about flying on a MAX, they'll help them rebook without change fees. Smart move by Alaska, or do you not approve, Tess Andrade? Well, I have to say that as you were explaining all the changes that have been made to the Boeing Max, I started to kind of warm up to the idea of actually flying on one. So I think it was smart for them to set up that website for people like me who have a few questions. Yeah, I, um, think, I think that's. Uh, I think Alaska is headquartered in Seattle. And that's Boeing country. And I'm sure it's in the best interest of all U.S.-based airlines that Boeing be successful. So maybe this is their way of trying to reestablish confidence in their kind of brother airplane manufacturer. Yeah. And I think it's a good idea to give people the option to rebook on a different plane. Although it doesn't instill total confidence in the plane. But I guess that's not what they're trying to do. They're really just trying to make everyone feel comfortable yeah satisfied people i was even thinking about these planes the max planes were around in 2017 all of 2018 first couple months of 2019 there's a chance that you or i or a lot of our listeners out there have already flown on a max plane we didn't even realize it right yeah definitely for our final story in airline news today united airlines announced that they have set a goal as a company to be 100 percent green by the year 2050 CEO Scott Kirby said that through a combination of the use of sustainable fuels and investment in carbon capture and sequestration technology, United will seek to be a truly sustainable airline in the near future. CEO Kirby stated, the pandemic has, if anything, emphasized the importance of what we're doing. While we were planning to invest in this, work on this project before the pandemic, what has become clear during the pandemic, even more starkly, is that we're a part of a global community, and everything that happens everywhere around the globe affects us. Tess, are you pleased with United's pledge to go green over the next 30 years? Would you like to see more airlines follow suit? Yeah, I think it's great, and I think more airlines should follow suit. 
And I, I really like that statement too. I feel like it's very in touch with how everyone has been feeling. It, it's very universal and relatable that a lot of people are using this time to reevaluate or move into a new career mm-hmm. or, you know, just question their, what they've been doing with their lives. And I, not to make it all philosophical, but I feel like it's good that the airline industry is doing the same thing on a larger scale. Yeah, definitely. This pause gives you the time to kind of reevaluate what you're doing. I think that's a great point. I read that these carbon capture plants, it's funny because when I first read carbon capture plants, I thought they were like organic plants that capture carbon, but they're actually like factories that are basically <laughs> these. They're car- like uh, f- Venus flytraps. Yeah. They're basically like massive air purifiers for the planet. It's even theorized that once the carbon is captured in these plants, the carbon can be used to pull more oil out of the ground, which seems a little bit like a paradox, pulling carbon out of the air to pull oil out of the ground to put more carbon in the air. But I'm glad someone out there is thinking we should do something other than, you know, set more fossil fuels on fire, make money and pretend like there's no repercussions for it. Well, I think that's going to do it for the 30th episode of PCPC. Thanks to Tess Andrade. Tess, you want to say anything to the people before we leave? Oh, it's so much pressure saying something to the people before we leave. I love you all. Thank you so much for being patient with us as we took a little time over the holidays. And we've really missed you and we're excited to make more episodes for you in the future. Yeah, thanks to the Patreon crew out there. We're on Instagram at Plane Crash Podcast. Um, we're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. You can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Plane Crash Pod. Check out the T Public merch. Remember, Sinecure and Querulous. Lastly, Tess, I want to say a few things before we finish up. 2020 has been one hell of a year to live through. I know a lot of you out there have lost your job, maybe lost a loved one. You haven't been able to live the life you've been used to living. No gatherings, no travel. You know, movies or bars, or maybe you had to postpone an important celebration that you were planning. Throughout the year, we've all had to live in fear at times that we or someone we love might get sick. The anxieties surrounding health worries, financial worries, and just the weirdness of living on a planet during a pandemic takes its toll on us. And I just thought we should all take a moment at the end of this year to reflect and feel some pride in ourselves for tackling this really difficult task that was thrown in our lives that none of us asked for. We've proven to ourselves and others that we can do hard things that were not soft. There will be more challenges in the future, and guess what? We can always recall how we lived through 2020. We have a history of seeing obstacles thrown in our path, figuring out a way to get around them, or at least how to get through them. So if you're a grocery store worker or an emergency responder or a student, teacher, doctor, unemployed and staying at home just to keep the spread of the virus to a minimum, whatever you've done to plug into society and help us all get through this horrible year, I just want to say thank you and let you know that if you haven't taken a moment to appreciate your own toughness and resiliency, now's the time to do it. You deserve it. You made it through 2020 and I am impressed. Until next time, thanks for listening to Plane Crash Podcast. Hope you guys have a great holiday season. We'll talk to you soon. Love you guys. Bye-bye.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.